Lord, we come this morning seeking to be humble before your word, recognizing, Lord, that this is no normal passage of Scripture or normal activity that needed to take place in the life of your people. And so, Lord, we come asking for your help and your guidance, and, Lord, for you to do a work in our lives from this text. And, Lord, what we know not would you teach us, Lord, what we are not would you make us, and what we have not, Lord, would you give us. And allow me as your messenger to be faithful, to proclaim your truth, so that your people, Lord, can grow to become more and more like you, and so that those who do not know you would see the beauty and the glory of your gospel. We ask this, Lord, in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Back when I was in university, there were two lists that were posted, not only in the main bulletin board of the school, but also in the dormitories. Um, One of them was the dean's list, and I never had to check to find out whether my name was on that or not, so I kind of ignored it. But there was another list. It was called the DC list. DC was short for Discipline Committee. And so you were responsible every week to check the discipline committee list to find out whether or not you had committed some kind of infraction, usually a small infraction. Maybe you were late for too many classes. Maybe you failed to pay a fine at the library. Maybe you didn't actually clean up your clothes in your room when the hall monitor came through to do room check. Maybe your hair was a little bit too long talking about the guys here, maybe you were studying in your room after lights out. There were all sorts of small kind of things that you could be written up for, and you typically did not know what it was until you got there. Um, But not only was your name listed on the discipline committee, you had then to show up at some various times when the discipline committee was meeting, and you had to line up in the line of shame, so to speak. It was in the heart of the academic building, and everyone's going to their classes, and they can see this line of people that are standing for the discipline committee. And so there was often a lot of fun, a lot of kind of friendly banter about it. Aha, you got discipline committee. What is it, Rod, this time? You know, what crime have you committed this week, or whatever it might be. And of course, you went, and they, they told you what it was, and then assigned various levels of demerits and that kind of stuff. But if you didn't show up, um, you're, you would actually be <laughs> assigned to another discipline committee, and you'd get greater impact as far as discipline and stuff like that is concerned. But most of the time, these infractions were somewhat minor and inconvenient. Now, as we come to Ezra chapter 10, we find a list, don't we? It is a discipline list of sorts because it's a list of men who have violated God's commandment. Now, if you're part of Israel, you love lists. You love it when your name is included in the list of God's people. And we have that in the book of Ezra. If you remember, in chapter 2, as Zerubbabel comes, there's a list of all the families and stuff that were there with him when he came. And there's also a list in Ezra chapter 8 when Ezra comes with a smaller group of people and you want to be found on those lists. You want to be included with God's people. We, they, they love that kind of list. But the list that we have in Ezra 10 is a different kind of list. Again, it's the list of men who've broken God's clear commandment to not marry the pagan women of the land. And uh, a command had been given many times, and we looked at some of that last week, Exodus 34, 11 through 16, Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5, and there, if you remember, the issue wasn't race, the issue was religion. This intermarrying was something that God said should not take place among his people. And so what we have here, and what Ezra has to deal with in chapter 10, is this news that there are, uh, there are many who have committed atrocities against God and have married these foreign women. And um, they're, they're foreign women who are not converted, but who are worshiping pagan gods. So it's a list of shame, 
But as we'll ultimately see, it is also a list of hope. And I want us to see that because it's really important for us to understand what is taking place. It's a hope that is realized when God's people confess their sin before God, repent, and seek to do his will. And not all repentance is true repentance. Just think about this. A number of years ago, you may remember this, this might be before your time, but there was a man by the name of Frank Peretti who came out with a book called Piercing the Darkness, in which it was a novel, but in that novel, he he kind of argued for behavior that was the result of demonic activities or attacks in your life. And ultimately, his conclusion, he didn't say it specifically this way, but he portrayed it in the story, was this, it's not your fault the devil made you do this. Now, he was, this is under the, the umbrella of Christian uh, literature. And he was a firm who was known as Dominion Theology, which is the false teaching of deliverance ministry, where you're lying, you're gossip, you're anger. You, it just is, it's identified and it's attributed to a particular demon who's lurking in your soul, which needs to be prayed out or delivered out. So you are not actually responsible for your behavior. The devil made you do it. And as we come to Scripture, friends, it's clear that we are all directly responsible for our own sins. You can't blame a devil. You are responsible for your own sins. So you can't blame shift. You can't play the victim. And you can't make excuses. You're called to repent. And so there's both genuine and False repentance. And we have a number of examples of false repentance in the Bible. Quickly, just in your mind, tack into these these people that I'm sure you know of. Twice, Pharaoh told Moses, I have sinned, but he did not repent. Esau shed tears when he sold his birthright, but he did not repent. Judas felt remorse over betraying Jesus. He even said, I have sinned, but he did not repent. Repent. Friends, we can all kind of put on the show of repentance and it not be genuine repentance. And what Ezra 10 is calling us to is the pursuit of genuine repentance. What we have here is a wonderful picture of what true repentance looks like. Now, just go through the structure with me of the book, just to make sure that we, not the book, the the chapter here, just to help us flow uh, what's taking place. We have the confession of sin, verses 1 through 6, where Ezra, the people, And Shechaniah mourn and confess the sin of the people. Then we have the assessment of the action, that is what to do with this, verses 9 through 15. And then we have this long list of these offenders from verses 16 through 44. But the heart of the passage is found in Ezra chapter 10 and verse 10. And I call this the the egg that needs to be cracked in the heart of the text. This this is where we find what this text is really about. So if you would, join me, Ezra chapter 10 and verse 10, and let's read this together. And I want you to notice how Ezra articulates himself. First of all, he says, this is what you've done. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have broken faith and married foreign women and so increase the guilt of Israel, right? This is what you have done. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. This is what you've done. This is what you need to do. So what does authentic repentance look like? And here's the proposition for this morning. True repentance involves a genuine godly sorrow and the willingness to do his will no matter what. True repentance involves a genuine godly sorrow and the willingness to do his will no matter what. Now that that definition is coming right from this text, right from these verses here. This is what you've done. And this is what you need to do. And I want you to notice that genuine sorrow leads to repentance. But true repentance will always bear fruit. 
Now, these are two very important aspects of what it means to repent. So let's take these two things and let's see what the Lord has as we unpack this passage together. First of all, there is godly sorrow. True repentance means that we recognize some things. First of all, that we have sinned against God. Notice verse 2. We have broken faith, not with each other, but with our God. Probably the best example that we have of this kind of attitude is the attitude of David, who committed sin with Bathsheba, not only in adultery with Bathsheba, but also through murder of Uriah. David sinned against both of them, but those sins do not compare to his sin against his God. When Nathan confronts David, David is repentant. He records for us his repentant heart in Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, verse 4, here's what he says, and he's speaking to God. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And friends, I wonder whether or not part of our problem is that we don't see our sin as ultimately against God. We just see our sin as against other people. So, for example, when you shout in anger at your children, you are sinning against your children. But more importantly, you're sinning against God. When you steal from your employer, you are sinning against your employer and risking your job. But worse than that, you are sinning against God. See, that's part of the puzzle that sometimes we just don't connect. And this is what is gripping Ezra and Shechaniah and the people of Israel. They say, we have broken faith with our God. Is that how you view your sin? Yes, you need to make it right with the person you've offended, but do you honestly make it right before God? That is where godly sorrow takes us, face to face with God, talking with him, dealing with him about our sin. Secondly, though, we need to see that we feel the weight of the sinfulness of sin. We talked a little bit about this last week, but we have it again here. Verse 1, the people gather with Ezra, and again, the people are gathering with Ezra, and they are weeping bitterly, we're told in verse 1. There's clearly a deep sorrow for the sin that has been committed among the people of Israel. Twice we read, the people of, uh, of Israel feel the weight of their sin and they are trembling at the commandment of our God. That's in verse 3. And they're trembling because of their sin in verse 9. There's this trembling going on. And then in verse 14, they recognize that the fierce wrath of God will be on them unless there is repentance. Now perhaps they were reflecting on a passage like Exodus chapter 34. And verses 6 and 7, let me read it. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the God, oh, sorry, the, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast uh, love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. How wonderful our God is. But there is a but right after that. But who will by no means clear the guilty? visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is a weighty thing. Unconfessed sin is a weighty thing. Unrepentant sin is a weighty thing. And as we look to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. There's a need, friends, for godly sorrow. There's a need to feel the weight of the sin that has been committed. Now friends, let's recognize there's a difference between two words, remorse and repentance. Remorse means I am sorry, I feel bad about what I did, I hate myself, but ultimately remorse leads to despair. Whereas repentance says, I have sinned against you, I've sinned against God, I hate my sin, and it leads us to the cross where we find forgiveness. We need to move away from remorse. That's what the world does. And we need to move into repentance and say, I have 
sinned against you and against God. I hate not just myself, I hate my sin. Now, if you remember, Peter, after he denied Christ three times, went out and wept bitterly. He saw his sin and repented in deep sorrow, and he was forgiven, and he was restored, (laughs) and he was ushered into ministry. Friends, we need a godly repentance that feels the weight of sin. Third, we need to remember that we are taking responsibility for our sins. We we must take responsibility. Verse 2, And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, the son of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God. He's not saying, These guys over here that are listed at the end of the chapter, these guys have done it. No, he says, We have done it. I have sinned. We have been unfaithful. Rather than saying, you know, I'm just a victim here, or it's the disease that I have that caused this, or blame shifting, or using other excuses, just like David is saying in Psalm 51, God, you are justified in the way you have dealt with me because I am responsible for my sin. Now, our society has rapidly taken away personal responsibility as an explanation for sinful actions. You know this. You can't blame these individuals for their behavior. Why? Look at the homes they grew up in. The lack of a father. The lack of a mother. The dangerous communities they live in. You can't blame them for committing petty crimes just to survive. I mean, look at their lack of education. Look at their poverty. How can you expect them to not behave badly when they don't have the tools to survive? We've got to be careful in our response to that. Not to get political, but to remain biblical because there are elements of truth. There are elements of deficiencies that some people have in their, their life and their home life, and maybe they're not even taught some things that are, that are convictions that should be present. But friends, this doesn't remove their responsibility. That element of truth is there, and we can help them, but it doesn't remove their responsibility, their culpability. Friends, look at yourself. Do you look to take responsibility for your sins, your thoughts, your actions, your words? Or are you typically looking for ways to minimize, to shift the blame, or again, play the victim? Friends, it's bad enough that such responses are legitimized by the ideologies of the world, but it's worse when they creep into the body of Christ and they're used as reasonable explanations for the sins that we have committed. True repentance, godly sorrow, means that we're willing to take responsibility for our own words, our own thoughts, our own sins. So we say things like this, I lied to you, it was wrong. Or we say, I was sinfully angry with you and failed to treat you with consideration. I lusted and watched that pornography. I did it. I allowed my idolatry to move me to make that foolish purchase. Yes, I'm responsible. It was my choice to respond in that sinful way when I wasn't getting what I wanted. Or it was my choice to act that way in order to get what I wanted. It's my fault and my fault alone. This is what godly sorrow does, friends. It takes responsibility. But see, Things are moving in this passage. Right at the beginning, these first few verses here, they're moving towards something. There is kind of a crescendo or uh, some kind of a, 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 a trajectory that is leading to hope. And here's the, the, the fourth thing here. We need to remind ourselves that even in our sin, we are embracing hope that comes only through God's mercy and grace. Look at verse 2. And Shachaniah, the son of Jehiel, the, uh, uh, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. How is it that Shechaniah can say there is hope for Israel? Well, verse 4 tells us that Shechaniah was basing his argument on the law of God. So his hope is likely because of his grasp of themes and passages in the law of God. We read one of them already, Exodus 34. 
The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. This is his commitment to his people, his hesed love. Or maybe Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Friends, if you are alive today, and I think that most of us in this place are, then there is hope for you. Your sin of lying, your anger, your lust, your selfishness, your pride, or fear, whatever it is, is not so great that all hope is gone. Israel's sin was devastating, but not beyond hope. Your sin may be devastating, and you might feel that God has given up on you, but if you are breathing, that is clear indication from God that there's still hope for you to be restored. Everyone take a breath and remind yourself that you're still alive. That's the mercy and the grace of God, and there is hope for you. Friends, true repentance requires godly sorrow that recognizes that our sin is against God, that feels the weight of the sinfulness of that sin, that takes responsibility for that sin, but still rests and appeals to hope that's found only in Jesus Christ. Now, that's the front end of this passage. And we're going to move now into the second section, which is verses 3 and all the way to verse 17, because we've looked at godly sorrow, but now we want to be willing to do his will. See, it's one thing, it's a right thing to have godly sorrow or grief over our sin, but true repentance bears fruit. That is what John the Baptist instructs in Matthew 3, verse 8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So when we repent, we must also be willing to do his will. That's the second part here, what Ezra is instructing Israel to do. Right Now then, Make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. That means that we must turn to the word of God to determine what needs to take place. How do we move forward when we are truly repentant? We bear fruit that reflects full obedience to Christ. And friends, quite frankly, I think this is where we often fall short. Because, see, you know, when we're, when, we're, when we're in conflict or when we're trying to resolve something, we might get to the place when we say, look, I apologize. What more do you want me to do? This. You get that? It's one thing you say, I apologize. See, I've, I've admitted I was wrong. I admitted that I sinned, but now what? We must be willing to do his will. feels like enough for us that godly sorrow leads to repentance, but often we're reluctant to follow through and do whatever is necessary to be in obedience to Christ and his word. So with that in mind, we must say this, we must do his will even when it's difficult or seems impossible. I've repented of my sin of pornography, but how do I tell my wife? How do I get help so that I don't do it again? I cheated on a test and have made it right with God, but now I have to go tell my teacher, tell the administration, and ask for forgiveness and face the consequences. I've repented about my anger and selfishness and my harsh treatment of my children, but now I need to make things right with them and get help. See, friends, sometimes doing God's will when we repent is difficult, and it seems daunting. You might be convinced that actually doing God's will and confessing your sin to your wife and family will do more damage than good. <laughs> so you're like, no, I'm not going to do it. You might think that if you admit to your cheating on that test, that it will mean that you won't get your scholarship. 
But God's way is through the difficulty and the seeming impossible mountain before you who said that you can't live for Christ even though you don't get a scholarship because you were putting him first in your life. On the other hand, what you have done might seem rather insignificant in your eyes, but in God's eyes, it's very significant. That is what we have here. The sin of intermarriage was extremely significant. It was an offense to God. It violated his commandments, and it's what Israel did repeatedly throughout their history and was the reason ultimately that they ended up in bondage in Babylon. But based on the list of offenders found at the end of this chapter, there's only 111 listed as guilty. Maybe there was a little bit more. But if we do the math, and the math is kind of shaky, whether it's 30,000 people that were living in Jerusalem and Judea or 50,000 people that were living there during that time, that's like 0.4% of the population. It might seem that Ezra was making a mountain out of the molehill. Ezra, why are, you, why are you sitting down pulling your hair out and tearing your clothes and grieving over the sin? It's only 0.4% of the population. might seem insignificant to us, see? But to Ezra, this was incredibly important. He wasn't making a mountain out of a molehill. He wasn't going over the top. He's not freaking out. He's a student of God's word, and he's seen how Israel has drifted away from God through intermarriage again and again and again. See, Ezra knows what the Apostle Paul articulates in 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? The sin was significant because of the purity of God's covenant people. If it was left alone, it would continue to permeate through the people. And they would end up being where they were before they were taken captive. Now, this narration that we have in verses 3 through 17 gives us four important or helpful guidelines for doing his will, all under this letter A, even when it's difficult or seems impossible. Here's the first one. We need the support of the people. Notice in verse 3, when Shechaniah stands before Ezra and the people, he proposes a plan. Let's read here, verse 3. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, for we are with you. Be strong and do it. And he's speaking to Ezra. Make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children. Now the casual reader, to the casual reader, that is probably the most difficult part of this chapter. It's not the intermarriage with unbelieving wives. It's the fact that Ezra is saying, in order to make things right, you have to put away your wives, even the children. It just seems unjust to the casual reader. What is going on here? What have they done to deserve this? We don't have images in our mind of putting them away as, you know, marching all these wives off into the wilderness and just saying, go, get rid of you, that kind of a thing. But I want you to notice something. I want you to notice that Shechaniah tells us what the guiding principle is to his suggestion. He says it there in verses 3 and 4, according to the counsel of my Lord, and then let it be done according to the law. So there's some kind of basis now for what it is that he's calling for, and we're not told specifically what that is. And if you looked up in your Bible and said, all right, where is this passage? It tells us specifically what we should do here. You're going to have a hard time finding it, but there's two passages that come to my mind that I think are helpful here. Genesis 21, when Abraham sends away Hagar and Ishmael, 
Ishmael had been born to Abraham as a result of his sinful relationship with Hagar. In other words, it shouldn't have taken place. He should have exercised faith in God and trusted that God would provide, and God ultimately does, right? But he sends her away with provisions in order to make it clear that Isaac was to be the child of God, uh, God's covenant and his promises. Sends her away with provisions. Right? It doesn't just mean kick out of the house, you're on your own, you know, suck it up. There was something else going on there. There was something that was understandable. This was wrong, it was sinful, and I'm sending you away with provisions. Then Deuteronomy 21, verses 10 through 14, you can read it yourself, but it deals with how a man should, should deal with a foreign wife when he no longer desires to be married to her. And there it says, you shall let her go where she wants, you shall not sell her for money or treat her as a slave since you have humiliated her. You are the one who is responsible here. You need to treat her with dignity. You need to make sure that she's taken care of. So it seemed that the tone of the putting away is not punitive on the part of the wife or the child. They would be sent away with provisions and likely would go back to live with their families where they came from. The issue here was more on the shoulders of the men who had pursued this in violation to God's commandment. So the issue at stake here is the ongoing purity of the people of God and the danger of the leaven of idolatry to permeate through God's people. And what Shechaniah says in verse 4 now is significant. Say all that to really get to the point here of number 1. And notice what he says to Ezra. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Now, friends, it's no small thing for the elders of the church to have to deal with sin that is present within the church body. Elders are not waking up every morning saying, yes, I get to deal with sin again. Woohoo! give me a high five. That's not what's going on. There's a great reluctance, and there should always be this great reluctance. But there's also a great responsibility. People's marriages and families are at stake. The health of the body of Christ is at stake. The reputation of Christ and his gospel is at stake. So it's, a, it's difficult, reluctant work that must be attended to. And that's what's going on here. Shechaniah is saying, look, Ezra, this is going to be hard work. This is going to be a challenge. People's lives are going to be affected. But we are with you. We support you. We're behind you. So be strong and do it. And friends, when serious sin, both public and private, takes place in the context of the body of Christ, it becomes a huge burden and responsibility for the elders of the church to address and confront it, to call for repentance, to provide help and counsel, to call for the fruit of repentance. This is a labor of love that will often take much Time, lots of counseling, lots of meetings, lots of check-ins. So how does Ezra respond to the support and encouragement of Shechaniah and the people of Israel? Verse 5, then Ezra rose and made the leading priests of the Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took, they took an oath. The leadership agree and they affirm the plan, they affirm the support, and the plan is set in motion to restore God's people back to God. So we need the support of the community. Secondly, we need to exercise great humility. Look at verse 6. Before the plan is initiated, notice what Ezra does. Ezra withdrew from before the, uh, the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehonan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithfulness of the exiles. He was still feeling this greatly. He was still mourning over the sin. And so he retreats to this private place in the house of God. He humbles himself by fasting and praying before enacting the plan. And God's leaders are not called simply to make CEO decisions for the body of people under their care. They're called to pay attention and to, to be, pay careful attention to themselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made them overseers to care for the flock of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So this is a spiritual undertaking, not a boardroom decision. 
And friends, there's, there's a whole tone that is different when that's the case. So add to that, all difficult decisions should be bathed in prayer and not rushed into. Time should be made for serious consideration, biblical thoughtfulness, and humility before the Lord. And if you remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, 1 through 5, a passage is often distorted, right? Judge not lest you be judged. But remember the point of the whole passage was to say, before you go and confront someone, what should you do? Take the beam out of your own eye before you go and take the speck out of someone else's eye. So this is what Ezra is doing for us. He's getting away before this plan unfolds. He's, he's taking time to humble himself before the Lord. We may be angry at the sin, but we must fight through the anger and proceed with the spirit of gentleness, which is what the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 6.1. Right, brothers, if anyone is overtaken in a, any transgression, you who are spiritual, it's not just the leadership, that's all of us, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. One of the questions that we should ask, always ask is, how would you want to be approached or talked to if you were the one who had fallen into sin. You would want to be approached with gentleness, with love, recognizing that the elders or even the, the members of the body of Christ reaching out to you were doing it because they loved you, they cared about you. So there's a tone here, friends, that we need to recognize. Great humility as well as the support of the community. Number three, we need for the process to be taken seriously. Look how Ezra instructs the people of Israel. And the proclamation, this is verse 7, and the pro a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. This is not just the people who had, who had committed the offense. This is all the people, right? And that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. That's pretty extreme. There are two things that... The Israelites live for, right? Obviously, well, three, the Lord, right? But secondly, the land, as well as belonging to the people. He's saying, if you don't come, you're going to lose this. So when they heard the proclamation, they knew that Ezra and co. were dealing with something significant and serious relating to the people of God, and they made sure that they were present. Now, friends, just get your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 18, if you would, please. Matthew 18. There's a seriousness that we need to have as the body of Christ. This is what's happening with Ezra, but we're kind of moving now forward to the church. Jesus guides us in how we are to deal with sin, in particular, more public sin in the church. We begin at verse 15. Here's what we're supposed to do. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's step number one. One on one. Verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is two or three on one. And it's actually not two or three on one. It's actually two or three that are there to witness what's taking place and to be counselors and help to make sure that either the person who's, who's confronting or the person's receiving are actually hearing and understanding and that they're responding in a, in a Christ-like way. They're there to witness what is taking place there. But two or three on one. Then notice what it says next. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. That's the church on one. There's a responsibility now of all the membership of the body of Christ coming together, lovingly reaching out and pursuing that person who was wandering into sin. And ultimately who is unrepentant at this point. And by the way, I need to back up in there. There is an exhaustion of time and effort made in steps one and step two. It's not just like overnight. Come to step three, the church on one, but notice what it says. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is the world on one. And friends, I think it's, it's helpful to realize that, that, that if we are put out of the church, we are put out into Satan's domain where we're going to be hammered by our own choice of sinfulness. In a sense, the umbrella of protection that comes from being a part of God's church is removed 
And you are going to receive the harshness of the consequences of your own sin. How does the church interact with Gentiles and tax collectors? What's the response that we should have? Not, but, man, we love you. Do you know Jesus? Do you realize that he is he's the one who can, can be the answer to all of your problems? So it's, it's evangelism again, because this person, by their unrepentance, is saying, I am not identifying myself with Christ being the Lord of all. I don't want to listen to him. Now, obviously, this means when this is happening, this is being carried out in a Christ-like and godly manner. So, friends, do you realize, I think I've mentioned it enough times here, that, that your elders many times are burdened down with interacting with people in the body of Christ who are walking in sin and are unrepentant, and you don't know about it. Because the net of need to know is kept tight because we're dealing with people's sins. And you don't know what's happening. Oh, I know this person, I've talked with them. What are they doing? If we're aware of it, we are seeking to honor God and to help them to be restored back to the place where they need to be in their walk with God. Now, according to Christ's command here, there may come a day when the church leadership, the elders of Gateway Bible Church, will call for a meeting of the members of the church, and it will just be for the members of the church, not to discuss finances, not to discuss a future facility, but because they need to make known to you the ongoing unrepentance of one of the members of the church so that you then can pursue them to restore them. This is what happens with God's community that truly cares for one another. It's not a time for anger, but for weeping. It's not a a time for gossip, but for instructing God's people to pursue individuals in love and calling them to repent of their sin and to be willing to do what God has commanded them to do. It's a time for prayer and self-reflection. It's a time for instructing the church how to lovingly pursue their brother and sister in Christ who has been overtaken in that sin in order to restore them back. Friends, we must as a church take sin seriously and love one another boldly, and if necessary, take drastic actions to be Christ's representatives. The goal is always to win your brother and sister, to restore them to Christ and his church. So we need the support of the community. We need uh, need to exercise great humility. We need the, the process Uh, to be taken seriously. And here's the fourth one. We must be open to a godly reasonableness. You say, what are you talking about there? Just notice what it says here. I think this is wonderful in this passage. I think it's really, really helpful. Uh, There's this reasonable working it out togetherness of Ezra, the priests, and the Levites, and the people of Israel. Just notice in verse 12. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, it is so... We must do as you have said. But (laughs) the people are many. And it's a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open. And when they gathered that day, the the text tells us that not only they're trembling because of the sin, but they're trembling because the rain is pouring on them. It's cold out there. We cannot stand in the open, nor is it a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. So then they come up with a, I might want to say, a new plan, right? See the great wisdom that's going on here. It's a consideration. Yes, this must be done. Yes, we are with you, but there's a more effective, more efficient, more thorough way that this can be achieved. What they're going to call for is that the elders in every city would call on the the, the offenders to come. They would examine them at an appointed time. They would take time in doing that, and then they ultimately would determine what was going to take place with those individuals. And you will notice in verse 16, the latter part there says, on the first day of the 10th month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they came to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. That's a three-month period. And if we just kind of do the math, 
I'm bad at math, right? But we do the math. Let's say, let's just say there's six cities and so that's six locations. And we take, let's say, 120. We divide that by 40 hours a week over the course of three months. You realize that each person's going to get a good chunk of time. See, we might kind of get the idea that this is all happening. Like just line up and get rid of your wife. Get rid of your wife. Get rid of That's not what's going on here. They're taking their time to look at the situation and what happened and what needs to be done. I kind of figured it out. It's probably six plus hours per individual. Taking time to make sure that this is handled in a way that honors God and even the person that you have affected by your sin is taken care of. Isn't that wonderful? And that the leadership is open to listen to what I'm calling Godly reasonableness. My friends, what is happening in Ezra 10 is a unique situation in the history of Israel where the purity of God's people is at stake and so drastic times call for drastic measures. Chapter, uh, this chapter isn't intended to be a proof text for legitimizing divorce. But Ezra 10 is modeling us for the need of godly sorrow and the willingness to do God's will when we have sinned. Now, there's some big questions that, that flow out of the, some of the, the, the themes that are, that are here in, in chapter 10 and, and some questions and principles. There's two things I just want to address quickly here just because they're bubbling to the surface from what's happening here. Number one, Scripture is very, very clear. A, a, a true believer should only look to marry another true believer. This is true in Israel, and it's true today. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that we are not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, he is speaking about more than marriage in that passage, but he certainly is speaking about marriage. This is the message our young people need to hear. They need to hear because there's so much tragedy that takes place when they don't realize this. Just because she's gorgeous and kind doesn't mean that you should pursue her. If she's not a believer, she's off limits. Trust God. Just because he's ripped, has money, and is a charmer doesn't mean that you should be pursuing him. If he is not a follower of Christ, you should not be following him. The problem is, friends that our hearts and our youthful passions often get the better of us, don't they? And as a person in particular enters into that single adulthood, they may be tempted by loneliness or de de desperation and give up on God's clear commandment to not be un unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. Friends, we need to pray for our young people that they would be firm in this principle. And that they would not somehow do missional dating. Because what happens is your heart gets tugged. And then you find yourself in this quandary. No, there should be no quandary. This person's not a believer. I'm not interested in them. I like them. They're nice people. But they are off limits. Secondly, should believers today who are in mixed marriages divorce? Again, we must go to the teaching of Scripture Clearly, God understands that when people receive the gospel, that can result then in homes now, marriages being you know, a wife who's a believer, a husband who's not. And as such, the word of God is clear. No, you should not divorce an unbelieving spouse. And there are two passages that can be helpful here. 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16, where Paul answers the question very directly, and then 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, where Paul gives instructions to, in particular, wives who are married to an unbelieving husband and how they should behave toward him. See, friends, these are very important questions that need at least to touch on briefly here for clarity uh, because oftentimes in the church, people are confused or they've already given into the world's thinking. My friends, helping couples and families where sin has taken a grip in some of the hardest it's some of the hardest and challenging work a pastor does, elders do, or even for the body of Christ. But we must work together for the sake of one another and for the glory of God. 
And it's often the pastors and elders who are working in the trenches. And that's not a woe is me. That's just a reality, friends, where we need your prayer. We need your support. We need you to recognize that you may not be hearing things from us, but there's still stuff that's going on that you're not aware of. Now, let me share with you one example of of how just God worked in, in my life as a pastor with elders at a previous ministry when we were faced with a, not, not maybe as drastic a situation, but again, it was a situation that had to be dealt with carefully and clearly and for the glory of God. Um, I want to talk to you about a couple that I'm going to call Bill and Sally. It's not their names, but Bill and Sally um, uh, were a young couple in their 20s, and the, their youngest daughter, they, they both came with their daughter and started attending our church. They both grew up in Christian homes were saved in their teen years, but then after, you know, after they got out, they kind of wandered in the world, and in doing so, that's where they met each other, and they started attending our church, and um, they were attending our church for a few months, and after a church service, Bill comes up to me and pulls me aside. He says, Pastor, I need to confess something to you. He said, he said um, Sally and I are not actually married. We are um, living together and we're convicted and we're shamed that we're living together and we don't want to be deceiving people anymore. And he says, Pastor, um, we want to do the right thing. We want to get married. What should we do? We don't have much. What do you recommend? Well, my initial response was to say this to Bill. Bill, if you're truly repentant. I'm going to ask you to do something that might seem drastic and might upset yours and Sally's lifestyle right now, but it will demonstrate your honest desire to glorify God. And he kind of nodded his head and waited for me to kind of further. He wasn't sure what he was going to hear. I said, I want you to treat your relationship with Sally as if you were engaged to her, and that means that you have to move out of your apartment and stop being intimate with her. Do you have any place that you can go, family or friends, where you can stay for a few nights? He responded, having taken it all in, Pastor Roddy says, I understand. I will find a place to stay. Whatever we need to do to make things right with each other and with God, we're willing to do. That afternoon, I contacted my elders and explained the situation with them and shared them with them my plan. And with Bill and Sally's permission, we would share their story with the congregation and see if there was anyone in our congregation that could put Bill up for a month or who might have a place where he could stay. Because the idea that I was getting at was, all right, let's, let's live for a month as if you're unmarried in such a way that you're no longer committing sin, that you're living in purity for a month's time. And during that time, you can both come together and we can do counseling together. We can prepare for a wedding together. And so ultimately, that's what we did. And one of our members had a building where Bill could stay during the next month. We met for counseling and the, the church rallied together to put on a small meet, a wedding and provide the reception and both Bill and Sally were able to stand before one another on that wedding day with a clear conscience and make their vows honestly to one another before the Lord. Now, truth be told, when Bill approached me that Sunday, I was exhausted from preaching. I was looking around for my four kids, trying to help my wife kind of rally the troops. And I was thinking about eating a hearty lunch. So when he approached me and shared with me his and Sally's desire, my mind wasn't ready, and I can only attribute what took place as coming from the Lord. I was forced to filter everything that Bill was saying through the grid of biblical wisdom to rejoice at someone's repentant heart that would even speak this and want to do things that were right to take their situation seriously, to filter their circumstances through the Word of God, and to come up with a way that could press, we could press on and honor the Lord. And friends, if we're truly repentant, we must be willing to do what the Lord requires of us, even if it's difficult or seems impossible. 
Now, I'm not sharing this to pat myself on the back. This was the Lord that kind of gave me the idea, and we were able to flesh it out. It was wonderful today. They're still married. They're, they're walking with the Lord in a wonderful church. The point is, friends, that much of the kind of stuff that we have to deal with is not cookie cutter. You can take all sorts of lessons in seminary, and the, the situation you're going to face is, is going to be more complex. <laughs> but we've got to filter everything through the, 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 the truth of God's Word to see how we can help people to respond and do the will of the Lord in their repentance. Now that's just the first part, willing to do His will, even when it's difficult or seems impossible. But there's something else here that we need to see. We need to um, do His will even when it may be divisive or unpopular. Look at verse 15. Here's what we're going to do. Here's the plan. We're all together in this. We're supporting you, Ezra. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Josiah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshulam and Shabbethai, the Levite, supported them. So you have two guys that speak out against it. You have two guys standing behind them, right? So these four men are opposing the action that Ezra and Shechaniah and the people agreed to. What's interesting here is that if Meshulam of verse 15 is the same Meshulam found in verse 29, then he is opposing the process on personal grounds because he's actually married to someone. Friends, the sad reality is, is that even when God's word is clear and God's people are careful to lovingly and boldly deal with God's people and their sin, there will often be some who will have a problem with it. It just comes with the territory. Some might think, Ezra, you're being insensitive, you're being unloving, you're being self-righteous, you have no compassion for hurting people. How could you break up a marriage, especially with these children involved? You are shooting the wounded rather than caring for the flock. And if Ezra wrote Psalm 119, which many scholars believe he did, he's writing about the centrality of the Word of God, there are many verses in that psalm that reveal the difficulty and challenge of standing on God's word. Maybe turn to Psalm 119 and just look at it with me. I'm just going to highlight a few because it helps us understand not just that the, that the word of God is something wonderful for us, which it is, but this is also part of it. Psalm 119, verse 22. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Verse 42, Then shall I have an answer from him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Verse 51, The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. Verse 69, The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Verse 95, the wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. Verse 110, the wicked have laid in snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Verse 157, many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. Friends, the, the, the application for us is that we must always stand on God's word. And when we do that, as pastors, as elders, as a church, there will be people that say, we don't like it. And we don't stop what we believe God wants us to do, I'm trying to be as clear and sure that this is what God wants us to do based on his word. We don't stop to do it, but we recognize that it might upset some people. Friends, it must be said that we're, we're, we're walking on difficult and dangerous ground here, aren't we? Because we can so easily fall into one of two ditches, right? There's one ditch on one side that is the ditch, I want to call the ditch of legalism. It's a broad ditch. There's many kind of, you know, there's different kinds of legalism that's out there, but it, it, it basically is a, a legalism where 
God's people feel entitled to be self-appointed um, monitors of believers who are playing whack-a-mole with people's sinfulness, right? You're just walking around the church like, this person sinned, that person sinned, and you shouldn't sin. And that, you know, it's, it's kind of what the world wants to portray the church as. The problem is when that happens, the tone of the church community feels more like a police state where Big Brother is always watching, ready to pounce. And no one wants to be a part of that. You may have been in a church that's been like that. On the other hand, we can fall into the ditch of antinomianism or lawlessness where we could put everything under grace and refuse to, to address sin at all. When that happens, the tone of the church community feels like a free-for-all where sin is rampant, true godliness is ignored, and the church looks more and more like the world around it. Now, those are two ditches that we don't want to fall into, and I think they're ditches that have different degrees. God doesn't want us to fall into the ditch on either side, but he, he wants us to walk along the path of godliness that has guardrails established by the, the word of God and, and biblical wisdom. And when that happens, we can truly care for the flock. We can love one another. We can, we can truly have needed hard conversations that are gentle and looking to help one another to grow in our walk with God. And we can speak the truth in love. Well, let's bring this to a close. I want you right now just to take a moment, look at Ezra chapter 10, and I want you to look at the names that are listed at the end of this chapter, at the end really of the book. Just look at the names. There's 111 of them. Just kind of let your eye rest over them. But I want to remind you, friends, it says here these are the men who had taken foreign wives. But what appears to be a list of men who have sinned by breaking the commandment of the Lord, and, and it is, now turns into a list of men whose godly sorrow pointed them to hope, and through their repentance, God would grant them forgiveness and bring restoration. <laughs> if we can look at this list and say, look at these guys, look how terrible, these are the guys that committed sin, but these are the guys that committed sin and stood before a council and ultimately through the repentance, returned to the Lord. We found hope in him. And if we're honest, friends, our names are more likely to be on this list. People who have violated the commandments of God, but are forgiven and are restored. You know, when I first read through the book of Ezra, I thought to myself, boy, this ends on a downer. And yet... What appears to be a downer is actually an, an establishment of hope. There's another list. It's in Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. Oh, it's not a list that we can read, but it is all those who are written in the book of life. And it's not just a list of those who have come to faith in Christ. It certainly is that but it's a list of people who have struggled with selfishness and idolatry and temptation and the lies of the devil, but throughout their struggle, they pressed on in Christ and persevered in hope till the end. It's not a list of perfect people, but people have, who have been made anew in Christ. They've failed again and again and again, but they are the recipients of grace and mercy again and again. They are forgiven they are secure. They are the delivered people of God. If you made it on that list, it's not because of anything you've done. True repentance involves a genuine godly sorrow and the willingness to do his will, no matter what. May we pray as a church that we walk down the path of godliness, 
as we seek to do this, that our tone would be right, but our responsibility would be true. That we would seek to honor the Lord, at the same time, be gentle and loving as we speak the truth in love. Seeking to care for God's flock and honor the Lord. Lord, help us today. This is truly a weighty passage of Scripture, Lord. And we know that even in a small church like ours, that there is a struggle with sin. Marriages, Lord, are struggling. Individuals have sins that they are mastered by. Some are private, some are public. And you've given us a responsibility as your body to encourage one another toward repentance. And Lord, may we learn from this example we have in Ezra 10 that godly sorrow matters. We should feel the weight of our sin, that it is before you. We need to take responsibility for it. But Lord, because we are your children, there is hope. Hope of restoration. Hope of, that, of, of getting to that place where we're right with you once again. But Lord, you also require of us that we do your will. No matter what. And that in doing your will, Lord, that you will be glorified. Whatever loss we may experience because we are being faithful to you, maybe in the world's eyes, is a significant loss. But Lord, it is our gain. Because you are greater than whatever it is, Lord, that's hanging out that we think that we have to have. Help us, Lord, not only to be people who are willing to repent, but people who are willing to do your will no matter what. Help us to be a church where we are tender with each other when we sin. That we're gentle. That we walk with one another. That we speak the truth into our lives. That we weep with each other. That we encourage one another. That we pick each other up. Lord, may Gateway Bible Church never feel like a police state. And may it never feel, Lord, like there's just a free-for-all of sin, but Lord, may it feel like we are a community of people who are committed to one another and committed to you that reflect, Lord, the, the tone and the heart of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us. We are desperate. We need you. In your precious name, amen.